0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com. The gist is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines. Any time, using your phone or tablet, read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more, from the back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com/gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs>
1: It's Monday, May 9th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So after we ran our Trump anxiety hotline, we got a lot of good feedback. Many people claiming that we, in fact, eased their anxiety. So hotline bling. But there was this strain of comment. People saying, all oh, these smug media folks, mm-hmm, this guy, so sure Trump won't win. Well, you were wrong about the primary. Well, listen, I'm not smug. I'm not certain. I think Trump has a chance of winning a higher than 10%, less than 30% chance of winning because so much will rest on what Hillary Clinton does, which brings me to the advice that political pundits have been giving Hillary Clinton. You know, Bernie Sanders could also get the nomination. All right, I just saved my inbox 20 angry missives. All right, back to Hillary. She's an informed, experienced, highly competent candidate. She's running against a mercurial chaotic blowhard. So what should she do? Here's what Donna Brazile and Katrina Den advise on this week.
0: I mean, you know, I really do believe that this is a historic opportunity. The country is at a, at a crossroad. And I think what Hillary Clinton has to do is abandon any notion that she can run a traditional campaign. Yes. Yeah.
1: Have we gone so far down the road of disruption culture, of game changing, of not your father's open source P2P virtual currency, that conventionality has just become entirely synonymous with Lame, Because, yeah, she can't run a lame campaign, but I would advise her to embrace many, many aspects of conventionality, like mastering the issues, knowing things, appealing to voters, making her case in speeches and via get-out-the-vote efforts, not spending more money in Wyoming than Florida. All of these are highly conventional things to do, and she better do them. Oh, also... Negative ads. If you've ever said, I hate negative ads, negative ads are the worst things about politics. Let me tell you, in this election, I say you're wrong. Donald Trump wants to violate the Constitution by imposing a religious test on who enters America. Donald Trump doesn't know basic facts about finance, nuclear weapons, or international treaties. These are all highly negative, highly accurate comments, and Hillary Clinton better say it which is the conventional thing to do, by the way. Look, if there's a zoo break and the wildebeests are roaming downtown, you know what you bring out? You bring out the tranquilizer darts. Totally conventional, totally right. House on fire, water. Water works pretty well. Very conventional. Good at putting out fires. Poison, antidote. Conventional, effective. So go conventional, Hillary. Go competent, go conventional. Go I am sane, he is not type arguments. This is my advice to you. On the show today, we debut in our spiel, our movement regarding coverage of Donald Trump from this point forward. You, you member of the media, you're not going to get away with labeling that thing he's doing as a pivot. But now one of the great post-punk, pure pop albums ever to spring from the New York music scene of the 70s and 80s, Blondie's Parallel Lines, a reassessment. I think you're going to want to listen, come hell or high water. No, that's not the idiom I'm going for. Push comes to shove. No, that's not it. What am I trying to think?
0: Catch One way or another, I'm gonna see ya. I wanna meet you, meet ya, meet ya, One day, maybe next week, I'm gonna meet ya. I'm gonna meet
1: ya, I'll meet ya.
0: I will drive past your house.
1: Now I bring you a story of sexism, of class, of race, Oh, yeah. It's also a story of one of the greatest albums of all time, Blondie's Parallel Lines. And it's from the great 33 and a Third series, where they just examine an LP for all of its significance. And and this Blondie LP has a lot of it. Kembrew McLeod is the author of this particular story, Parallel Lines is the album. And Kembrew McLeod is here. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So were you a Blondie fan? Did you uh, listen to this album a lot as a kid? How did you come to the music originally before
0: you started to write and think about it? Blondie's always been with me, but it really wasn't until I was in college that I discovered their first album and started discovering their kind of weird bohemian underground punk roots, basically. So that drew me again to Blondie.
1: So we're about the same age, and I don't recall ever living in a time without Blondie, but I think I, like a lot of people, thought Blondie was Deborah Harry. I thought that was maybe her stage name or something, and then I got a little older and someone set me straight, and also there was this rumor about Hitler's dog. But the one thing I never really got sure, they might have lived on the Lower East Side, but like, how were they punk? How were they part of the punk scene? Although when you consider the other big groups out of the punk scene, groups like the Tall Heads, They're not the punk that I think of. It seems
0: that the word punk was kind of liberally sprinkled about in the 70s. Punk is pretty much a media fabrication, the word punk. It didn't start getting used until about 1976. And there are some rock critics like Lester Bangs and Dave Marsh who had used the term punk in their criticism to refer to like 60s garage rock bands like the Trogs and stuff. Really primitive bass drum guitar Garage rock, but punk only started circulating as a word after the magazine Punk debuted in early 1976, and media needed a, a term to latch onto. And and before that, the bands themselves were just calling themselves like. Street bands, New York City bands, or whatever. So most bands, including Blondie, really kind of bristled at the punk label because it basically flattened what was a really, really diverse scene. And that's kind of the point, right? When we think of punk, we think loud, hard, fast, angry white guy, you know, railing against disco and teen pop. But really, I mean, the reality is that a lot of those punk bands were into bubblegum and the Ramones famously wanted to be like the Bay City Rollers. They genuinely wanted big bubblegum hits. They tried to write those songs, but they they failed miserably in a spectacular way. And, and Blondie's part of that story. Blondie's part of this really diverse punk scene that then gets kind of flattens by the term punk.
1: Right. So if at the time someone felt betrayed by what Blondie was doing and what Parallel Lines really does is kind of embrace pop it was only because of a failure to understand what punk was i've always, I always thought punk like with the spiked hair and the multiple piercings that's conformity in a way and blondie was being so unconformist by doing the kind of music that they were doing
0: yeah i mean that they were especially with heart of glass uh, that was their first kind of big genre experiment when they moved from kind of pop punk-infused guitar rock, you know, but mostly pop, to yeah, this this other thing, which was like electronic disco. And, you know, subsequently, some of their biggest hits were other genre experiments, like uh, Rapture or Tide is High, uh, experiments in rap and and reggae and, and so on. So, Blondie... Uh, One thing that I learned from talking to the various band members, the founding band members like Debbie and Chris Stein and uh, Gary Lachman, the original bassist, and Clem Burke, uh, who was there from the beginning, the drummer, uh, uh, you know, the one thing I learned from talking to them is they had all the band members had really wide ranging tastes. And they were, you know, kind of basically experimenting. They're an experimental band, but they're experimenting within the arena of pop music.
1: Right. And a female front woman who wasn't a riot girl who embraced her not only beauty, which is undeniable, but enjoyed taking pictures, uh, enjoyed posing for photographs, said it's an art form, said, I wish I had invented sex, you know, stuff like this. A, A real feminine front woman who I guess a lot of people didn't know what to do with or they did. They were just sexist. You do what sexist guys always do with women of that ilk. Chicks can't rock, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've talked about the disco sucks and disco demolition, knuckle draggers. But what about the CBGB bands? What about Blondie's contemporaries? When Parallel Lines came out, were they against it? Did they think it was uh, representing being a sellout? What were their opinions?
0: Yeah, I, I've seen clips of the Ramones on TV and Johnny Ramone grumbling about how they would never. Go disco, which was clearly a dig at Blondie, but you know, Chris Stein, the founding guitarist of Blondie, who I talked to, you know, he said that a lot of that stuff, that that competition, like for instance, Johnny, what Johnny Ramone was saying, was you know more or less tongue in cheek, and they were all friends, but there was definitely a lot of competition within uh, and among the CBGB bands, and and there was a lot of tension that I documented, for instance, the book between the band Television, which was much more kind of serious, arty band and Blondie, who were more fun and and poppy. So, you know, uh, it it was kind of a mixture of, you know, genuine competition and frustration that these other bands didn't make it from the perspective of these other bands. You know, the Ramones probably actually did not like disco, right? (laughs) So they might have been. Yes, uh, there was very little, uh, very little evidence in their music that they liked disco. (laughs) Yeah. And I I wouldn't be surprised. Sheena was a punk
1: rocker, not a disco (laughs) diva. Yeah
0: and the main thrust the original thrust of punk was to basically create your own style and to to create like your own persona and and be individual yeah
1: and i understand the frustration of if you're in television and you produce marky moon it's just one of the greatest albums of all time and that must have sold what like twenty five thousand copies you know it's a really obscure type of album except to the Cognoscenti. but. Parallel lines and what Blondie went on to was true superstardom, uh, true megastardom. So, how ubiquitous were they? How successful was this album?
0: Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable how successful they were. I mean, they were so ubiquitous, not just in America, but they've always been a much bigger band across the world, also. But what's really interesting and weird about Blondie, I, I talked about their weird Bohemian roots, and they never really gave that up, even at the height of their popularity when they were famous from 78 to 82. They also had a weekly public access show. Chris Stein and his friend Glenn O'Brien, who was a Andy Warhol associate, co-hosted this, this crazy talk show, variety show called TV Party, which Debbie Harry was often on. And, and so, yeah, can you think of Journey, for instance, like hosting a public access show at the height of their fame? No. I mean, I can't think of a single contemporary of Blondie that would do anything like that. And I think that really kind of highlights the kind of duality of Blondie, which is uh, on the surface, they're just this great pop band and they wrote great songs, but they really were, when you scratch the surface, uh, a lot weirder when you start digging down into their roots. The one thing we haven't
1: done, we've talked Zeitgeist, we've talked Milieu, we've talked Influences, we haven't gone track by track, and we can't do it with all of them. So I'll ask you this. Why don't you take one or two tracks that, of course, you knew all the songs and you liked all the songs, but you learned some fascinating things about either how they were recorded or how the lyrics were made or if it was a surprise hit. You could could take any two you want.
0: I'll start with the most obvious one, which is Heart of Glass. I mean, that's the one that I've heard probably more than any other Blondie song, just by the fact that it was played on the radio so much. And, you know, I, I always sort of understood it as a disco song, which it is. It definitely, you know, fits into the disco milieu. But when you really listen to it and listen back on it, It's very much more kind of craftwork, electronic pop, than actual a straight-ahead disco song with a disco beat. And in interviewing Debbie Harry and and Chris Stein and Clem Burke about the recording process for that song, that was always their intention to write basically a craftwork song. The band, for the most part, didn't even think it was a very commercial song. They saw it as an experiment. You know, it was unlike any of the other songs on this guitar-driven album. Clem Burke was telling me that the band's, like, first of all, it wasn't the first single. It wasn't the second single. It wasn't even the third single. Uh, I believe Clem Burke, when he says they didn't think it was a commercial song. And that that's why they kind of buried it on the album. It's like on side two, the fourth song on side two. So the other thing that I really enjoyed about learning more about the creation of the song is they were mining one of my favorite groups, which was Craft work. And I can totally hear that now when I go back and listen to that song. In between, I, I'm Love so I guess a, another song would be Fade Away and Radiate, which was definitely the most downbeat song on the album. I didn't actually realize that Robert Fripp from the progressive rock band King Crimson, he played guitar on it, and really he kind of makes that song, he creates that this eerie tone that if you go to YouTube and you pull up the song while you're listening to this podcast and you listen to it, you'll see what I mean, but it has this uh, eerie tone, and this is a great example of the way that the barriers in the music world were breaking down during this time.
1: Ooh baby I hear you spend night time wrapped like candy in a blue blue neon glow Fade away and radiate Fade away radiate
0: Crumpson is this progressive rock band. Blondie is seen as a punk band, maybe, or a pop pop band. But they meet Robert Fritt, basically, at uh, CBGB, where he ends up playing guitar on a, a couple songs that uh, when Blondie's playing the benefit. You, you know, you have the supposed diametrically opposed worlds of prog rock and punk, and here you have it melting together in this Blondie song, Fade Away and Radiate, from Parallel Lines. Electric faces seem to merge. Hidden voices mock your words. Fade away, radiate.
1: Wandi are the first people to bring real rapping and scratching to network television. They insist that some actual rappers show up with them and do some songs on Saturday Night Live in 1981. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. Uh,
0: in fact, so you're talking about the Funky Four Plus One's appearance on Saturday Night Live, which coincided with uh, Debbie yeah. Harry hosting Saturday Night Live in 1981. And this is another example of how, you know, I can just imagine... Blondie's managers were ripping their hair out of their heads throughout the course of their fame, because not only do they have this band doing a, you know, that's the the biggest pop band in the universe at the time, and they're doing a weekly public access show instead of doing what they should be doing, which is like shifting more units, but they, they also, when Debbie Harry gets to appear and host a Saturday Night Live, Blondie doesn't even play. Debbie Harry and Chris Stein were partners, romantic partners, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever you want to call them, throughout the run, uh, Blondie's run, and they still remain good friends now. So, anyway, the two of them make the decision to not have Blondie play at at, at the time when "Tide Is High" and "Rapture" are floating at the top of the charts, and instead, they ha- basically have an ad hoc band where they play a Devo cover and another R and B cover and then they have Funky Four Plus One, an actual rap group. Instead of them performing Rapture, they have an actual real, like honest to goodness, rap group from the South Bronx, a really influential group, early group called Funky Four Plus One. And it's just I can just imagine, you know, their their managers like face palming themselves when they find find out that they decide to not perform as a band on Saturday Night Live instead have these unknowns perform in their place. Please welcome my friends from the Bronx, the Funky Four Plus One More. These and other stories contained within the
1: uh, dense but taut New 33 and a third offering parallel lines. Kembrew McLeod wrote about that great yeah. Blondie album. Thank you, Kembrew. So hey, thank
0: ready you for you're so ready. much. Are you ready, so ready for this? Are you ready for this? We're
1: ready for this. Are you ready for this? We're ready for this. this. What well, we just can't miss. We just can't miss. What well, we just can't miss. With a beat like this. that
0: we to prove to everybody we know the real we got
1: what do we want Information? What don't we want? Clutter. How do you get the good stuff in your brain without not just the bad stuff in your brain, but the actual bad stuff lying about the house? Think about Netflix. Because you have Netflix, you don't have to have dozens of dozens of DVDs. Also, it's 2016. Who has dozens of dozens of DVDs? What about the Netflix esque thing for magazines? God, do I love magazines, but they pile up. Only a few of them are attractive. It's an app that lets you plug into the world's most popular magazines, like Golf and Entertainment Weekly and Details and The New Yorker and Shutterbug and Ski and Rolling Stone. Notice how I'm just reading some big ones and some ones you maybe would like to check out. That's the other thing that Texture does. Texture makes it easy to find articles you care about. They have an editorial team and they recommend content for you every day. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anywhere, anytime, using your smartphone or tablet. Easy, no clutter. And Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash gist. No downside. You see how it works. You see all the good magazines that are there. You see their their features, their editorial content where they point you to magazines that you're going to like. You also get back issues and bonus video content. So start binge reading right now for free right now. Go to texture.com slash gist. That's texture.com slash gist. And now the spiel, calling out, calling it a pivot. The challenge with Donald Trump is, well, manifold. If you're, say, any one of the five living Republican nominees for president other than Bob Dole, the challenge is making peace with the fact that this guy will be the Republican running for president. If you're a fact checker, the challenge is trying to come up with a more forceful way to express Pinocchio's pants being on fire. And if you're a member of the media like me, it's it's to be interesting. I mean, calling out Trump every day, day in, day out for his misstatements, his poor argumentation, his flat-out mendacity, is that really what you, the listener, turn to me, the member of the media, for? Well, I hope so, because it's what you're going to get. Here on The Gist, and in our many tentacled media arms, Facebook, Twitter, the advertising that The Gist has taken inside of elevators as part of the Captivate Network. Here, we are starting a movement. We will not allow any members of the media to engage in this particular construction. This is Patrick Basham, director of the Democracy Institute. I think a couple of things are going to happen. Um, He has planned all along as he pivots to the general election campaign against one presumes Hillary Clinton, that his rhetoric, his tone, will become more presidential, more statesmanlike No, 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 no. He is not pivoting. We will not allow the media to get away with asserting that Trump is executing a pivot. I remember after one or another of those Super Tuesdays, Super Tuesday 1, 2, 3, Trump was nice for a change, momentarily gracious in a speech. Ah, this is the pivot, the pundit said. And then the next day, it was all Lion Ted and crooked Hillary and stubby K. To say that Trump can even pivot is, well, it's like this. Its greatest asset is its extremely powerful beak, strong enough to strip flesh from the toughest carcass and even to disembowel an intact corpse. Oh, but wait, the vulture has looked up from the soon-to-be-rotting flesh of that felled gazelle. Has the flesh-eating scavenger changed his ways? Pivoted, if you will, to become a gracious dove or a glorious osprey, perhaps eschewing his life as a consumer of carrion. no weight, he's back to eating the gazelle. Trump, like the vulture, does not pivot. He, at best, pauses. But more often, he doesn't do that either. The more accurate term for what Trump is doing rests not in the vocabulary of gymnastics, but in the fantastic. Trump merely contradicts himself. Therefore, whenever we see an assertion, oh, Trump has pivoted, that's actually Trump contradicting, please tweet hashtag contradiction, not pivot. An example of what will one day sure to be a pivot when he walks back this one, here he is on CNBC talking about defaulting on the U.S. debt think there are times for us to refinance. We refinance debt with longer term because, you know, we owe so much money and I could see uh, long term renegotiations where we borrow long term at very low rates. This would be a disaster for a number of reasons. So, of course, he's going to explain it away, drawing on his business experience. He's going to say, I'm being unpredictable. He's going to try to say, oh, I'm being wily, thinking outside the box, trying to spook creditors. What he's really doing is undermining global confidence and screwing over the country should he be given the levers of power. So he won't be pivoting. He'll be contradicting. Please point that out. Here's where it really happened, just yesterday. Here he was on Meet the Press talking to Chuck Todd. So I guess, which is
0: it? Are you willing to raise okay, it's, taxes it's, on the 0.1% no, no, no. me not? explain.
1: Let me explain how the world works, okay? I think nobody knows more about taxes than I do and income than I do, but I'll explain how it all works. I don't come up with it. I come up with the, the biggest tax cut by far of any candidate, anybody, and I put it in. But that doesn't mean that's what we're going to get. We have to negotiate. The thing I'm going to do is make sure the middle class gets good taxes, tax breaks because they have been absolutely shunned. The other thing, I'm going to fight very hard for business. For the wealthy, I think, frankly, it's going to go up. And you know what? It really should go up. ABC wrote it up this way. As Donald Trump pivots to the general election battle, he's already walking back his tax plan. Blah, 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 blah. No, he's not pivoting or walking back. Well, here's Reuters getting it right, but then getting it wrong. The contradictory statements, yes! came as Trump began pivoting no to a general election race against likely Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. And then there was another statement. He went on CNN this morning, and CNN's website played those new batch of words as how Trump clarified his position on taxing the wealthy. Are you kidding? There was no clarification. There was a contradiction all during the primary election. I'm going to lower taxes on everyone. I'm going to lower taxes on the wealthy. Here's my plan. It's written down taxes on the wealthy are definitely going down every expert who looked at it said and now no that's not true all right let's say trump was running for manager of the office you work in and he says you know what i'm going to do i'm going to lower the temperature to 72 degrees woohoo yay say all the sweaty guys lower it to what ask a bunch of ladies who've been frost burned too often i'm going to lower it from 72 to 74 that's not a pivot Maybe I'll understand if I lower my consumption from three beers to six. But as of now, this is not a pivot. This is a contradiction. Hashtag contradiction, not pivot. So tweet that out. I'll retweet it. I'm sure we'll get dozens of retweets. All right, maybe not dozens. Let's be honest, less than dozens. 12,000. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist unconventionally. Wearing Mittens. Mary Wilson also produces the gist equally unconventionally via telekinesis. Steve Liktai is the unconventional executive producer of Slate Podcasts. How unconventional? Guys never listen to a podcast. Doesn't care for the medium. Andy Bowers is chief unconventional content officer of the Panoply Network. How unconventional? One phrase. Scratch and sniff cast. The gist, we probably just violated our non-disclosure over the scratch and sniff thing. So the gist, we have an unconventional commitment to contractual obligations. Umper depura Peru. and thanks for listening.
0: Now you notice these vultures they don't have any feathers on their head. That's pretty much because on their day-to-day basis, they're sticking a head inside of a carcass.